from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. From John chapter 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. And from John chapter 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So TJ just asked me, Bob, that's, that's my grand, grandpa nickname. What are you preaching on? I, I just said, the Bible. <laughs> He's probably like, that's every, that's every week. You're preaching the Bible. But today we're talking about the Bible. It's a great question he asked because we're, we're talking about the Bible itself, not so much what it says, but how do we know we have the things that were intended to be in the Bible. So we're talking this year about, of course, um, being a sent people. We're talking about outreach. We're talking about trying to reach out to our community and share the gospel. Um, and over the past, uh, I don't know, a few months, several times I've preached from 1 Peter 3.15's charge that we are to be a people who are prepared to make a defense or, or ready to give an answer or ready to give an explanation, a reason for the hope that is in us that hope that we've placed in Jesus and what he did at Calvary and what God did in raising him from the dead on the third day and all the things that go with that, that life, that story, that future that is promised, that's a hope we have that Peter says we need to be ready to defend or explain. If somebody says, why do you think this way? What, where does that come from? Tell me about it. Well, today we will again discuss what we discussed uh, last week, which is the reason for our hope and how that's connected to the reliability of Scripture. It doesn't make much sense to say, let me tell you about the reason for my hope if everything I refer to, to you know, as source material is in doubt, is, you know, uh, you know, is, is shifting sand or something uncertain. So the, the Scripture is what we know, is how we know most of what we know about Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that again in a second installment. Last week, uh, we, we, just to recap really quickly, and these things flow in together, so I think we need to do this briefly. Last week, we, we really reached uh, two uh, conclusions that I want to remind you about. We arrived at the conclusion, first of all, that our hope in Christ, in the fa final analysis, does hang upon, rest upon, um, the Scripture texts, the texts of the New Testament that tell us about Jesus. I don't want to underestimate the importance of extra-biblical you know, testimony about the existence of a, of a historical person named Jesus. Um, I think that's of some value because when people like uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, who was a pagan, talk about um, Crestus and the, the Christians that followed him, uh, the Roman governor Pliny, in northwest Turkey, also a pagan, wrote a letter to the emperor and talked about what do we do with these people called Christians who are spreading everywhere. Um, the Jewish historian Josephus, we, we can establish some kind of skeletal facts about what, who, who, you know, in a sense, a little bit about who Christ was and what the Christians who followed him uh, did. 
Uh, but they're just that. They're just sort of fragmentary. We can learn, for instance, that Jesus was an individual who was executed on a Roman cross in Judea, over in the eastern periphery of the empire. He was executed by the Romans. And that wasn't the end of the matter because a following arose that not only began in Judea, but spread to really everywhere. Um, it, it is already around uh, the, the environs of, of Rome and uh, you know, Bithynia and places like that by AD 100, AD 125. We know that from these extra biblical documents. We know that they worshiped, the followers worshiped this Jesus as a God. They saw him as the Jewish Messiah, but a divine being who was the God, the only God that created everything. And we know that they were persecuted already. Plenty is saying, what should I do to these people? Should I kill them? Should I, you know, rough them up? Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's something that's worthy of persecution. Um, but that's about it. Those are important facts. But those sources alone wouldn't tell us very much about, you know, the teachings of Jesus, the ethics of Jesus, um, the, the promises about the future, the eschatology, you know, what's going to happen in the end of, of, of the world that Jesus and, and his followers taught about. It wouldn't tell us much about the nature of, of his, his churches, uh, the groups, the communities that, that, is, that assembled in his name or um, their theology or their behavior. We would know very little, really, without the text of Scripture. So we can't really have much of a hope in Christ if we can't trust the Scripture texts that tell us about Christ. That makes sense? That was point one from last week. Second conclusion is that we can trust the process of textual transmission, the copying that went on over and over and over from ancient times down through the Middle Ages until we got these bound Bibles, you know, in the fourth century, they began to have bound books called codices, codexes, um, when it was a bunch of scrolls before. And we talked about how, how can we trust that? There are some discrepancies sometimes between manuscripts. You'll see footnotes in your Bible. Another earlier version says this, or uh, you know, this codex says this, or this manuscript says that. There is some of that. We don't want to be, uh, we don't want to downplay that. And um, uh, some of you don't know, didn't know Bob Garrett, who's a member here for years, passed away um, a few years ago. He used to say, um, he made this up. He always said, I, I made it up. He actually, I remember him saying this when I was like 28. He would say, an honest difficulty is better than a cheap solution. And man, that is so true. And nothing kills our credibility with the outside world more than making it neater than God made it. God doesn't need our defense. I mean, he needs, he needs, he needs the truth. He doesn't need us to add new defenses. He's not weak. All right? So we don't need to play with stuff and say this is really... There's, there's some things here and there. You know, it's not... It's, it's copied by copiers in ancient times. They didn't have Xerox machines or iPhones, as we said last week, to take pictures. But um, the transmission process is downright amazing in terms of its uh, reliability. We said last week there are over 5,000, nearly 6,000 manuscripts of portions of the Greek New Testament. They attest to every one of its books. And some date to just a generation or so after their original writing. So like 20, 25 years. Some of, the, some of the documentary evidence does. But we also have complete manuscripts of the entire New Testament from just two centuries later. Some of these codexes like uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and some of these we talked about last week. By contrast, I want you to compare the documentary evidence, the manuscript evidence that tells us about Emperor 
um, Tiberius, the, contempor- the emperor when Jesus is executed. So that's Tiberius on your right. Obviously, this is the crucifixion of Christ. These are two statue representations uh, of these two contemporaries. Let's compare for just a minute the documentary evidence, the manuscript evidence for the life, the public life and career of, of, uh, of Emperor Tiberius with the public life and teachings in that of, of Jesus. First of all, there are the same number of early written sources for both. There are four major ones. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John for Jesus. And I'm not going to go into the four uh, sources for Tiberius. One of them is Tacitus, but there are some others. There's basically four. There are a lot of words about both of these individuals in terms of manuscript evidence. But whereas the manuscripts reporting the sayings and doings of Jesus of Nazareth date from the 100s to the 300s A.D., the manuscripts about Tiberius, the earliest ones date from the 800s A.D. Think about that. You've got to go 700 years before you have something about him. That is interesting, isn't it? Who was more famous? Who had bigger influence in, in his day? I hope you know that's a dumb question. Jesus is a nobody from the edge of the empire. He's a peasant. He's homeless. He gets killed. He gets erased by Caesar like thousands of other people did. You lose. You're a fraud. You're a charlatan. Caesar rules the world. Peter J. Williams in a little book called Can We Trust the Gospels? He's a, a, the, the principal of Wycliffe House, which is a Bible study repository at Cambridge University. The British scholar. He says this, Even though Jesus was on the periphery of the Roman Empire, we have as many early sources about his life and teaching as we have about the activities and conversations of Emperor Tiberius during Jesus' public activities. Jesus has more extended texts about him in generally closer proximity to his life than his contemporary Tiberius, who was the most famous person in the then known world. That We could camp out on that and go, how'd that happen? That's not just, oh, eh. That's really weird. Think about somebody today who nobody knows about them. They say really strange stuff. They have a whole lot of opponents. They, the state decides to execute them for criminal activities. And then a few centuries later, there's a movement that's so big that it just moves on beyond the, the end of that state when it just crumbles into oblivion like every state eventually does. And still thriving today. That's at least curious. All right. Today, we want to address another question which is really relevant to the topic of the Bible's reliability. We're just going to do one, more, one question today. I was going to do two, but this question is too... It took too long, um, partly because I had a seven-minute introduction. Can we trust the process of the, of the selection of the Bible books? So, so you open up your Bible, right? It's, we, we think of this as a book. It's really not. It's got one binding. 66 different works written at different times by different people, occasioned by different historical circumstances, with different agendas and different genres. This is a bunch of stuff. And it was like that for centuries, right? Before they ever had this, a book. But... The documents that get selected to put in there, all right, aside from the question is, is, you know, the question like, is the text of Matthew reliable? This is the more the question is, why is Matthew in there and the Gospel of Thomas isn't? Do we have the right books, the selection process? So what we're talking about here is the formation of something called canon. 
Some of you know this word. David, this is, we're not talking about... Okay, that needs another N. No, not today. Um, canon is from the Greek word, uh, looks just like canon, it's just been transliterated into our, our letters. That, that came, it's, it just meant it was a reed that grew and they would use it as like some sort of rule or standard, like a measuring stick. And so it came to mean this idea of anything that is a standard, the Greco-Roman world used it this way, a standard for measuring something. Um, it's used in the Bible, not exactly in that sense, but in the sense of a, of a kind of standard. In Galatians 6, 16, uh, it's translated rule, as, at least in the ESV. And as for all who walk by this rule, it's, a, it's an ethical standard. Here's the bar you should be living your life by. Peace and mercy be upon them upon the Israel of God. That's the word canon. Not used for the scriptures here, but it's used in the sense of a standard or a, 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 a rule or a norm, right? It's not until the 4th century that the early uh, church uses it to talk about, that we have evidence anyway, of them using it to talk about the body of the scriptural documents. So what goes in the canon? We have 66 books in our whole Bible canon, um, all, and, and the ones we're talking about mainly today are the New Testament books. Do we have the New Testament books we're supposed to have? Is our question. Why were some excluded? Why were others included? All right. Let me suggest to you, first of all, that the question of canon ultimately revolves around the question of Christ. The question of canon ultimately goes back to and rests upon the, the issue of, of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is, for Christians, the ultimate authority on everything. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no nook or cranny in the cosmos that is not his. Right? All, all of our ideas are, you know, let every, uh, you know, uh, every thought be captive to him. Everything, our behavior, our thoughts, everything, he is the king of all of it. So he's the ultimate authority then on canon. Another way to put this might be to say, the incarnate word of God gets to say what's in the word of God. <laughs> Who better to say what goes in the word of God than the incarnate word of God? Right? John 1, the word became flesh. He's the word. The four New Testament Gospels make the claim that Jesus taught the good news of his kingdom, which he was bringing into the world as its king, that he performed miracles, that he was crucified for the sins of humanity and raised from the dead, foreshadowing a resurrection, not only of his people in the future, but the cosmos, a renewal, the new heavens, new earth that Revelation 1 and Isaiah 60 1 through 65 talk about. That may sound like circular reasoning to say what I just said, but whatever one thinks of the Gospels, we, they, we have to appreciate their claims. They are claiming to be relaying history, you know, presenting a historical account. They do it in different ways. They have agendas, you know, literary agendas, like there's a, a different angle. Matthew's more uh, quoting Old Testament scripture a lot. Luke has a lot of stuff on money and socioeconomic stuff. They aren't in the other four, uh, three Gospels. John focuses disproportionately on the last week of Christ's life and um, kind of seems to, uh, you know, like the idea of the Greek logos idea being embodied in Jesus. Um, anyway, there's a lot of different ways that they approach it, but they're all trying to present, claiming to present things that happened in, 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 in reality, historical facts. You know, Luke talks about different rulers who were ruling when Jesus was born. This isn't like some legend or old school myth of a lot of, you know, the formation of, of this or where this came about and it's sort of just lost in the mists of time and there's no real 
rooting in time and place. This is very different than that. It's rooted in time and place over and over again. And whatever a person thinks of the Gospels, that's what they are uh, trying to do. We'll talk about that in a later lesson. For now, suffice it to say that even unbelieving scholars recognize the historical value of the four Gospels in terms of knowing about the life of Jesus. Did anybody know the name Bart Ehrman? Teaches at UNC in the Religious Studies Department. Uh, grew up as some sort of fundamentalist Christian. Has renounced that. Uh, he's a skeptic and uh, uh, an, uh, an atheist, I believe. Um, he writes this. The oldest and best sources we have for knowing about the life of Jesus are the four Gospels of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is not simply the view of Christian historians who have a high opinion of the New Testament and its historical worth. It is the view of all historians of antiquity of every kind, from committed evangelical Christians to hardcore atheists. So I'm not reasoning in a circle here. I'm saying these documents are also regarded as historical documents. That doesn't mean that everything in there is necessarily true. It's just the, the witnesses are saying, this is what we saw this person say. This is what we say, say we saw. Now, deciding whether it's true and they're credible is a different story. That's for another lesson. That's not what we're doing today. What we're doing today is taking these four Gospels, which say they rely on eyewitness testimony, which purport to be presenting facts that they and many other people witnessed, and if, if you're a Christian, you, you've already, by definition, come to accept that claim. Well, then, if that's the case, Jesus, if the claims are true, then Jesus is the central authority for everything. And so he gets to say, it, what, what's canon and what isn't canon has a lot to do with Jesus. All right? Another way to put this is, for those who accept the divinity of Jesus and the authority of Jesus, the claims of the Gospels about Jesus... Jesus is going to function as a kind of bridge between his own day and the past and his own day and a bridge, another bridge out towards the future. When it comes to canon, Jesus takes us backward to the age when the Old Testament canon was formed and forward into the post-apostolic period when the New Testament compilation is being finalized. Let me tell you what I mean by that. What did Jesus say about the Old Testament scriptures? A jot or a tittle, the smallest letter, the smallest stroke of a letter is not going to be overturned. He's, in fact, he's coming to show you what that really meant. He's going to fulfill it, tell you how to re really read it properly. So many times when there's some sort of theological debate with the Pharisees or scribes or, or, or whoever, Jesus settles it. He, he, he uh, kind of has a mic drop by saying, the scripture says, he quotes the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms to prove points. He, in fact, on one occasion, I think in the Gospel of John, says the Scripture cannot be broken. And then in Luke chapter 24, to the two men on the road to Emmaus, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the, notice this three-part designation, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened his mind to understand the Scriptures. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms pretty much follows the Hebrew designation of their, the Old Testament of their day. Same exact material, but Psalms kind of rep it's kind of a metonym for the writings. It's the biggest one, the most popular one. That's another way of saying the law of the prophets of the writings, which another verse says. Uh, Hebrew scholars call this the Tanakh, which is a, like an acronym um, to talk about the, the Old Testament, which is the Bible of Jesus' day. They don't have the New Testament yet. And he's basically saying, what you take to be the Bible in Judaism, that's the Bible. 
Jesus is signing off on the Old Testament canon. Same documents we have. They're enumerated differently. So 1st and 2nd Kings are together. 1st and 2nd Psalms. They have less books because they count them differently. But it turns out to be the exact same text. Incidentally, what's not in it is the Apocrypha in the Jewish canon. There's the the hidden, so-called hidden books. Later on, uh, uh, different Christian groups will start having, you know, repeating the, the Apocrypha, translating it, putting it in their Bibles. Not all of them, but some of them. But the, the Jews of Jesus' time, uh, that's not uh, part of that. Now, so that's a bridge back to the Old Testament. He's, if you believe Jesus is divine, and he says the Old Testament is good, there you go. Right? Old Testament canon, boom, I don't have to worry about all that. The New Testament, what about that? What about the bridge into the future? Because again, there's no New Testament while he's alive. He's talking about the scriptures of, of the, the Jewish scriptures. He's fulfilling. But he does foretell and this gets back to the verses that Riley read a minute ago. Jesus does foretell that a certain class of people, his apostles, would be given by divine revelation, by Holy Spirit revelation, more of his word that was yet to come. And then they were to write that down and share it with the world. So John 14 and 16, I won't read them again, but he says, a helper, the Holy Spirit is coming. He will bring to your remembrance all I've said. And then in verse 16, oh, chapter 16, verse 13, he will guide you into further truth. Truth. He won't be, won't be speaking just on his own authority. He'll be getting and giving to you the things that, um, uh, giving to others the things that were given to them through Holy Spirit inspiration. And Paul talks about this in uh, places like 1 Corinthians 2. Now we have received, we apostles have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. What we're teaching you in our capacity as apostles is of a different class than just human wisdom. Like, here's a good idea. Here's what I think. That's the claim being made. And then in uh, Ephesians 3, 3 through 5, Paul says, The mystery was made known to me by revelation. It's about the mystery of Christ. as I, Something kind of particular, but still it would be a part of the general gospel. As I have written briefly, when you read this, so I got it through revelation. You're going to get it through reading something. Pretty conventional. And we can read from Ephesians now, actually, kind of proving what he says. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been, notice this, revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So there is this class of, of people, humans, called the, the holy apostles and prophets, who were going to receive a, a Holy Spirit revelation of material, of knowledge, that they're going to write down, and then when other people read it, this can become the, the, uh, you know, the, the knowledge of the church, of other human beings who aren't apostles or prophets. So Paul, who is one of these people, writes these things. Um, the documents that ultimately came to compose our modern New Testaments basically reflect the early church's process of recognizing which books had legitimate sourcing, either directly or indirectly, in the holy apostles and prophets. Okay? That's what they're doing when they're, when they're like talking about the canon and coming up with these lists and stuff. They're, does it have apostolic provenance? They're trying to honor this. Passages like it. All right. Second thing I want to talk about, really, uh, this is going to be a really brief point, is the New Testament canon in the early church. I'm not going to say a ton on this. Uh, this is probably already putting some of y'all to sleep, but you'll care one day when, when, when somebody 
you love is having doubts about this. Um, so know that there's places to go. There's books on this. There's giant scholarship on this. There's people who have nerded it up on this far beyond what you could ever imagine. Um, anyway, by A.D. 200, so New Testament period closes roughly 100. You know, a lot of people date the, the Revelation of John and the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John like in the 90s or 100, 110. A lot of folks do. No, we don't know for sure. Um, they appear to be later like that. Anyway, just roughly four generations later, A.D. 200, the core of the New Testament was universally accepted, by, at least by Orthodox Christians. I don't mean capital O, like Eastern Orthodox, but there's you know, sort of mainstream Orthodox, uh, doctrinally Orthodox Christians. So that doesn't mean that every single book was universally accepted everywhere. But the core, the heart of it, all the epistles of Paul, uh, the four Gospels, Acts, there were some questions about a few books. It took a little longer to arrive at universal acceptance throughout the church for some of the books. Hebrews uh, uh, and James were that way, largely because of authorship questions. Who wrote Hebrews? We still don't know. So you can imagine them going, wait a minute, it's supposed to be from the apostles and prophets. So you're going to have to think about that one. Hebrews is accepted some places quickly, but it's not accepted universally. Revelation. Well, it's just a little weird. And it's different genres, very different. It's uh, kind of the genre that a lot of the folks who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls wrote in. It's apocalyptic kind of genre. So there were some questions about some of these. Uh, though they were accepted in parts of the Mediterranean Basin from an early date, we don't find evidence anyway that they're accepted universally throughout the whole church. Some of the other books, the, the, the vast majority were by around 200 A.D., at least according to the evidence we have. Um, and then we get these lists, some of you may have heard of some of these, the Muratorian uh, canon that lists the, 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 the books that were accepted. That's around 200 A.D. roughly. Council of Carthage in 397. Eusebius gives lists in 322. Irenaeus in his writing. You've got a bunch of lists that I could go up and we could give you the history of the lists and all that. We're not going to do that. It's boring. You can look it up. Um, what are those lists about? Here's what they're not about. This is a myth that often gets... Um, uh, a lot of people thinking this is the way that this happens. So they're just sitting around, they don't know what to do, and somebody somewhere, some Christians in a council, come up with a list and go, there it is. And just on authority, you just go, okay. The leaders of the church, of this church, says, that's really not what happened. Here, F.F. Bruce, are one of the most foremost uh, scholars of the, of the New Testament in the 20th century, he's deceased now, he's a British scholar um, at the University of Manchester, for like 40 books, just phenomenal scholar. Here's what he says in this book, Are the New Testament Documents Reliable? One thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and general apostolic authority, rather direct or indirect. In other words, the lists are the results of the church coming to recognize, okay, that does have, that was written by Paul or somebody who traveled with Paul, Luke. That was written by Peter, okay, or Mark, who, there's tons of evidence in the early centuries after uh, 8100 that Mark was with Peter, probably got his stuff from Peter. So they begin to kind of do that, and then the lists come about. It takes a while. They don't have an internet. They can't call each other up. It takes a while for information to spread. So... Yeah, you don't, it, it, before we know that universally everywhere this canon was accepted, it's a little bit longer. But 
That's happening right out of the gate, that process. All right, my last point has the dumbest name of any point I've ever given a point. I, I, I just, it's too catch-all, I don't know. It kind of the, well, what, well, what about this problem? So I, I want to kind of address two or three popular lingering questions about canonicity and canon formation with this point, and then we will stop for the, today. Um, one of them is this. What about other letters not in the New Testament that Paul refers to in the New Testament? You ever thought about that? Uh, Paul refers to another letter to the Corinthian church. We have two, right? We have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, or if you're in Britain, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, but there's another one too. Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, in his, well, as far as we know, the first letter, he actually says there's another letter. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. This is in that chapter 5 about sexually immoral people and withdrawing fellowship and all that. What letter is he talking about? We don't have it. It's not, in, it's not in the canon. But he says he wrote it, so it's true. Okay? Let me ask you this. Why is that even an issue? Does having Holy Spirit inspiration for some of one's writings intended ultimately by God for canonicity, does that mean that everything that person wrote had that same divine guidance? That's an assumption you're making if you, if you have that in your head. No, the Bible never says Paul became a dictaphone machine and lost his free will and be, he just his hand was taken over. I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that kind of inspiration anyway in the Bible. Every, occasionally there'll be something like that. Usually it looks like the human writing this stuff had his own vocabulary and it tends to hold and all of his works. This person has a different vocabulary. John's Greek is very crude. Some people think it was a second language for John. Paul's Greek is like masterful, scholarly. Stuff like that. The Holy, the Holy Spirit still lets you be a human. More than that, Paul probably made a grocery list a couple times. You know, I need, I, need, I need some chickpeas and some olive oil and whatever else he ate. Sheep, goat, sheep cheese. I don't know what they ate. Um, Mediterranean things. I'm, I'm picturing, I'm picturing a, a Greek feta. It's made of sheep, sheep's milk. Sheep's cheese, you're right. The cheese that sheep eat. You know. Probably not sheep's milk. That would be weird. Um, anyway, this is getting weird. He, he had, he, what about his grocery list? What if Paul had, what if there were, somebody found uh, lecture notes that Paul took at the feet of Gamaliel from grad school? I've used lecture notes from, in history, when, writing stuff in my history work, like an old notepad. Somebody taking notes from this scholar that I was trying to like characterize what he thought about something. Is it from, is it from the Holy Spirit because of that? Another, that's kind of silly to think Paul can't write anything else, right? Another one though, maybe a little more interesting is this one, Colossians 4.16, I actually used this last week and he says, and when this letter, Colossians, he's writing the Colossian church, when this letter that is this text has been read among you, among the church publicly, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, which is right down the road. These are, these are churches in western Turkey. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Somebody flip open in your New Testament to first Laodiceans. You might have thought about that when we read it last week. Like, oh, well, that's weird. What, what, where's, where's that? Let me give you a couple possibilities about this. Neither of which is any big deal, honestly. These aren't even in the category of problems we need to be honest about. They're not even problems, in my opinion. 
Um, why is the letter to Laodiceans not included in our New Testament canons? One possibility is just redundant with other letters that would ultimately be included. Maybe it says the same stuff theologically and it's not needed. That's one possibility. Another possibility that I personally find pretty convincing is that the letter to the Laodiceans might actually be our letter called Ephesians. Now, why do I say that? Some of the oldest and best manuscripts we have of the letter to the Ephesians don't actually have the word Ephesians. There's a blank there in verse 3. Uh, or, I'm sorry, verse 2. To the saints who... And it just says, to the saints and then the faithful in Christ Jesus. There's no... There's nothing. Really early ones. A couple of those codexes I was telling you about last week which are stellar in their integrity. Also... Ephesians doesn't read like a, a letter that's addressing troubleshooting problems at a particular church. It's kind of universal sounding, right? It's about the general, the church. Unity in the church universal. Um, it's not like Corinthians or Galatians where he's going, y'all need to stop doing that and start doing that. It, it doesn't have that much of that. Not even as much as Colossians does. At the end of Ephesians, Paul, or whoever wrote this, it, it, it sounds like it's Paul, claimed to be Paul. I believe that. Paul says... Nothing about send my greetings to Joe and Mary and Fred and Susan and so on. You know, he does that at every letter? None of that. He even says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, assuming that you have heard about Jesus and were taught in him as the truth is in him. Assuming? What's weird about that, anybody? From the book of Acts. Doesn't Paul kind of know what happened? He was there over two years. And then there's another one of those back in Ephesians 3, um, uh, verse 2. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, it was given to me uh, for you, how the mystery... He knows they know all that. It's very, it's, it sounds very aloof and distant and for, like a universal letter for everybody to be read. So the idea of this theory is that... This, he says Tychicus is going to bring you this letter... Perhaps this letter was intended for a bunch of different churches, and everywhere Tychicus went, he just filled in the blank or just said, here you go. And so the, the Ephesians got one, and maybe that's the one that came down to the early church. There are several references to this in Basil and Origen and other people who are saying, yeah, the, the letter to the Ephesians, some of the copies we have, the exact, the exact same text, doesn't have an addressee. Maybe it was a, what's called a circular letter intended for a bunch of churches, and that could be the letter to the Laodiceans. Who knows? It doesn't matter. What, though, about those Gospels that have been discovered, those other Gospels, right? Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gnostic Gospel. These usually arrive with massive fanfare, and there's not nearly so much there there once you read a book, read a translation and have some scholars. A lot of unbelieving scholars of the New Testament, there's lots of scholars of the Bible who are not believers, they just fascinating literature that you know it's important they just studied academically a whole lot of them study these extra canonical gospels and don't for for one second think they were supposed to be part of the canon or that they were recognized by the early church bart ehrman wants you to think that's a big problem uh, and there are other people who really want that to be the case we have no idea you know the the, the vast majority of these extra canonical gospels are written at such a late date that they wouldn't even been a candidate for the canon of the New Testament. 
um, not all of them, but some of them that's the case. The Gnostic gospel, so-called, was written in the Coptic language, not even written in Greek. That's, a, that's an Egyptian uh, Nile, Nile River Basin language. It dates from roughly the 7th century. That's like way on down the road, right? Moving toward a millennium away. Um, others clearly go in a theological direction that is radically out of sync, even contradictory, to the teaching of the four canonical Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. This would be the case with the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which, by the way, isn't really a Gospel at all. It's just it's about 114 sayings, allegedly, of Jesus. There's no, you'd never know from the Gospel of Thomas that he died on the cross or was raised from the dead. It's just, he said these 114 things. It's like a bunch of pithy sayings by Jesus, and it's called the Gospel of Thomas, which, whatever. Um, it doesn't even look like a Gospel in that sense. And... It's so different in its teaching that one uh, commentator, one scholar, called it an anti-gospel. Uh, it has Jesus teaching the opposite sometimes of what the four canonical gospels and Paul's writings say he actually taught. I'll give you one example that's really interesting to me, kind of, kind of funny but pathetic. Uh, in one, one passage, the Gospel of Thomas has Peter, the apostle, asking uh, Jesus this question. Simon Peter said to them, to Jesus and, the, and the, the disciples. Let Mary go out from among us, for women are not worthy of the life. Process that for a minute. This is like, if you have even a slight feminist bone in your body or even some sympathy, hatred. Women aren't worthy of life? What? Sound like the Bible? Not, not the one I'm reading. Jesus said, <laughs> it gets worse. Look, I will lead her that I may make her into a male in order that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male or into a man, some translations say of this, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So only men go to heaven. For a woman to go to heaven, they have to be recreated into a man. Peter, who supposedly asked this question, wrote in 1 Peter 2, that women are joint heirs of the grace of life. That's a little bit different. Who does Jesus entrust the news of his resurrection, the central event, the bedrock of Christianity? Who, who is entrusted to go tell that to the world first? Mary, a woman. I don't think she's technically an apostle like the apostles were, but she's been called the apostle to the apostles in the sense that she's sent to the apostles. Some of them are running off. That sounds like he kind of thinks a lot of women. Um, it appears in Luke's gospel that they're like supporting the ministry, actually. In the context of the ancient world, Jesus and Paul are actually extremely progressive in terms of gender stuff. There's these ideas out there that, well, that's really retrograde. You're a dinosaur if you follow the Bible. It actually takes things the other direction from the Greco-Roman world. And in many ways from the world, even of, of Old Testament Judaism. Anyway, all right, what about those Christians who lived in the centuries, last question, before the final form of the canon was complete? This might disturb you the most. Like, all right, so you're saying it took, before the whole thing is recognized by all the church, in the, at least in the Mediterranean known world, it, it took like some centuries. What about those people who were trying to live the life before the final form of the canon's complete? Well, let me ask you this. Jesus who is our authority for canon formation, fully accepted, without qualification, the Old Testament canon. How long did it take for that canon to take its final form? 
Do we have this idea that the Old Testament fell out of hev the heavens complete one day? Like Moses walked over, boom, there it is. The Torah you know, came more to get, you know, well, I mean, that's even debatable. But like the Ten Commandments, yeah, he gets the law in some sense on Sinai. He didn't get the prophets. Hundreds of years later, these prophets come who are kind of covenant enforcers. What about all the writings, the Psalms, the, you know, the Proverbs, all, all these things, Ecclesiastes and all that? These are happening all over, through centuries. The Old Testament took at least as long for the, the canon to be recognized. And guess what? There were Jewish groups, isolated, but every now and then Jewish groups who said, I'm not sure about book X or book Y. Ecclesiastes was a problem for some people. Until the ending, you know that space at the end of, in chapter 12, before it says, the end of the matter, all has been heard and all that. And there's a space in your Bible probably of white. A lot of people think that was added later by an editor. I think it still would be, you know, be inspired and all that, but I don't know about that, if that's true or not. But the rest of the book, it's kind of a downer. Anybody agree? Ecclesiastes is basically saying it doesn't matter what you do, it ain't amounting to anything. And it's hilarious and awesome that it's abutted up against Proverbs in the Bible, which basically says, if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this bad thing will happen. Everybody gets what, you know, it just sounds like Chamber of Commerce literature almost. You know, do the right things and things go right. It's very American. So we like to pluck it out of there. Health and wealth gospel people love Proverbs for that reason. Read Ecclesiastes. It's like your dreams, they're going down, man. <laughs> it's just, you might as well just eat and go to bed. And then at the end, it's dusted off a little bit, fear God and keep his commandments, but still, there's still a lot of vanity in there. So they had problems with it. It doesn't mean the whole thing's a joke. It just means occasionally people had questions, and apparently the Lord himself recognized a canon that some human acknowledgement and decision-making was involved in. And, and Jesus says, that's the scripture. It took a while. Didn't mean it's based on nothing or some you know, council just deciding arbitrarily, here you go, we, by edict, demand that you, you, you recognize this. For that matter, let's fast forward up to the 15th century AD. 1400s. Five, six hundred years ago, right? It's the year, the years right before the Protestant Reformation, before Luther nails his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door and says the Bible only, and you get Gutenberg's printing press just a few years later, and, and all of that Protestant Bible only to every man kind of thing that we take for granted now can go viral. Couldn't have happened without the printing. It had a technological element there too. But before that all happened, I've used this quote before, Got it from a Bible scholar uh, in a, a lecture I listened to once. Uh, ben Witherington is his name, New Testament scholar, at a Society for Biblical Literature speech. He said this, Research shows that just prior to the Protestant Reformation and Gutenberg's printing press, there were about 80 Bibles in all of continental Europe. 80 Bibles. All of which were written in Latin, and most of which were chained to the pulpit of whatever... Catholic cathedral you were in. You know how many people spoke Latin in 15th century Europe? Outside of scholarly circles, who were, you know, it was a reading language, dead language in, in that sense. The Bible was not super accessible before Luther and other translators and the printing press and that technology. So how much knowledge could an average believer, a peasant in the Black Forest who comes to church 
every Sunday. No, it, 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 it's going to be necessarily incomplete. They're basically trusting that priest or Bible teacher, whoever, to, to faithfully present it to them. Was everybody lost before that? Come on. At the end of the day, we have to trust the God who decided to speak to us in the first place. We have to trust the God whose idea all this was. We wouldn't be talking about this if it weren't for that God initiating. We have to trust the God who judges all with perfect justice and with unimaginably wonderful grace. And this is indeed what Jesus, the incarnate word, revealed about that God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, notice this, full of grace and truth. Whatever we're working with, we do our best. We can trust the fact that God, we, we aren't this way really often, but God is a God of, of incredible grace and perfect fairness and justice. And I don't think we need to worry about that. But the idea that the canon we have is not reliable is just really, it doesn't hold up under actual scrutiny. And, and it, believe me, it's just like everything else in this clickbait world. You find some little shard of something and you get one radical scholar who's on the History Channel, and then you go listen to people who are actually scholars at the university you're going to, and even the unbelieving ones, let that is, he is full of it. He's just getting a bunch of, you know, likes. Um, a lot of controversy. Who doesn't love that? There's going to be a National Geographic magazine special at the grocery store, I guarantee you. Um, and then you find that he's got, you know, uh, Jesus saying that women have to become men. Oh, there's that in there? You know, stuff like that. Okay. Uh, this is necessarily oversimplified. I, I, I hope you know that because this is a massive topic. But we need to now move to the question of, are the gospel writers who wrote these things about Jesus trustworthy eyewitnesses? Did they, did they know what they were talking about? Aside from whether their books got in the canon correctly or whether their text was transmitted correctly, are they credible in a historical sense? Are they trustworthy represent, uh, people of, in, in representing history to us? That's what we'll look, about, look at next. Maybe next week, maybe not, depending on how it goes for me this week. These are large topics, sorry. All right, thank you for your attention. Uh, let's all together stand and sing. <laughs>